Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast, a Horace Heresy podcast. I am Warwick, joined by my co-host Brandon. Hello, my Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, Tech Priests of Mars. Welcome to Legion Cast. So let's get into the hobby section. What is on your hobby table right now? I can see behind you a couple things you've been working on. Talk about that. Yeah, um, my hobby has been dominated this month by one model, and that's the the giant corn dragon, Vorgarath the Scarred, and Skalok the Skull Host of Corn uh, for Age of Sigmar. It is just a massive model that my wife got me as a, a gift for my birthday. And I have been undertaking it. Um, I had planned to get it done this month. That was kind of my hobby challenge to myself. Unfortunately, I suffered an airbrush malfunction. And my airbrush essentially exploded out from underneath me. Uh, so the progress has been halted there. And that I got to be honest, that really kind of killed my hobby juices there a bit. Um, it's fixable. I've ordered the parts. Uh, they actually just came in today, but I haven't had a chance to, to put it back together and get things going from there. But I mean, you, I know you know how that is when something goes bad during your hobby and you're like, now I yes. don't even want to touch a brush. Right. That that happened to me when I, I've told you about this before, but I'll tell the audience. I was working on a bloodthirster for Brandon a couple years ago. And my roommate's cat knocked it off the coffee table and broke a bunch of pieces off of it. And I had put a ton of work into, um, I kitbashed the flail. So instead of being the uh, the regular like chain with a big weight on the end, I actually used the whip handle for like a more solid handle and then gave it two heads. So it was a double-headed flail. And then I built up the base a little bit and when the cat knocked it over, it broke up. It broke the flail off of it, and uh, like not not with the base where I had modded it, but like halfway up in the middle of the chain. And I was really upset about that. And then it snapped the the like the pillar of fire that the bloodthirster's jumping off of. And I was distraught about that for a long time. And I had to do a, a ton of work on it to fix it. I just had to have Brandon help me. On that note, though, that bloodthirster is my favorite now. It's that thing is crisp. Oh. Yeah. Good to know. I uh, I was pretty nervous about that whole project. You know, after that mishap, and then it, it killed my hobby buzz for almost a year, actually. So that that was pretty devastating there for a while. I'm I'm back in the saddle though. Yeah, that was unfortunate for sure. Um, the other thing, uh, our viewers can't see it, but I know you can. Right there, my other bit of hobby thing that Same I happen. For- to uh to pick up this month 3d printer go yeah Yeah. which is gonna be great because audiences are not happy about the uh a certain set of helmets that have come out recently or have been announced yeah we'll uh we'll talk about that in a little bit but first first warwick i want to hear what's on your hobby table what have you done this month okay i i actually hobbied i was a good boy and i built 10 cataphracty terminators he only hobbies now because he knows that i will ruthlessly shame him on this podcast if he does not shame is this the shame is a we started this entire podcast it was a trick on my part just to shame warwick into painting his models that is the level we go to and it works shame is a prime motivator folks roast your buddies it helps 
So I built 10 cataphracty terminators and I gave them dual lightning claws because uh, what is it? The cataphracties cannot do the sweeping advance. Well, dual lightning claws, they won't need to. And at first I was worried, you know, they don't have any guns, so they're going to get shot to pieces on the way up. So I was like, better put yeah, them that's in what, a That's in what a land raiders Spartan, are for, so bro. Spartan 2. Exactly. And, you know, even though the Land Raider is essentially a, a big box to put Terminators in, it's got a hell of a loadout on it. So, you know, it's it's a mean piece of hardware. And I'm looking, it's been such a long time since I've ran one. So I, just because I've been out of the 40k scene for a minute, but the, the whole, the, Hor- the Horus Heresy version has definitely got my blood pumping about that. Yeah, that was one so, of the things I was most excited about was the, the Land Raider's being viable again with Horus Heresy. Yes, definitely. And I had, uh, I know I had talked to you about what I was going to do for the basing for my Ultramarines, and I wanted to do tile floors. And I was, I tried painting on like cardstock a couple of times, and I wasn't happy with how they turned out. So I was scrolling through Instagram uh, like a month or so ago, and I saw this woman making earrings with like uh, polymer clay and acrylic paint, basically. And I was like, well, that looks interesting. So I pressed it all out and I ordered a bunch of stuff. And basically what you do is you cut up the polymer clay into these irregular chunks, uh, put your different pigments in there with like you use an acrylic paint. And then you put uh, that, that fake gold leafing stuff in it and you smash that all together and you can roll it out in a in a sheet and i'm gonna use like cookie cutters to cut out my bases so i've got all the stuff for that i'm gonna get into that this weekend i'll throw some pictures up when uh when i get them figured out but i've got all the stuff to get that knocked out now i'm really excited about it uh i think it's gonna streamline like making the bases more efficient they're gonna look awesome too so it's gonna be like yeah i'm i'm really excited to see it this is you know, I, it's such a unique idea that I've, I've never even, it never even crossed my mind until yeah. you brought it up. And I think it's going to look so cool. Uh, yeah. I'll let you know how it goes. I'm, I'm excited to, to try it out. Well, should we, should we talk about the news then? Yeah. Let's, there's been, there's been some news since our last episode. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, do, uh, lead us. Do we want to talk about the, uh, the elephant in the room the... or, or should I say the wolf in the room? <laughs> the, the cartoony wolf helmets. Yes. So, oh man, and those wolf helmets. I, so like, I'm not, I could care. I mean, I, it, they don't bother me a whole heck of a lot, but a, they look super cartoony. You get like, I think at least nine of them that are exactly the same and it's going to cost you like 20 or $30. This is a games workshop product. You're going to get nine identical helmets for 20 or $30. Okay, let's let's set the stage here though, because I know that there's some viewers that are not in the hobby side, or some listeners, uh, I should say. So over over the the release of the new edition of Horus Heresy, they have been teasing these uh, and and releasing Legion specific helmets for the new Mark VI Marines that were released with the with the Horus Heresy. Some of them look really great. Um, I like the Dark Angels one. Um, I also, I don't know if you saw, they teased the world, the world eaters one on corn day. Yes. They looked pretty good. Yeah. Um, but they showed these space wolf helmets and everybody just went nuts yeah. over these like wolf shaped helmets. 
And I don't know why everybody got so hot and bothered about these things. Like, they look whatever, but, I mean, the memes were flowing. The salt was just filling the mines. Yeah. It was insane. And I I even saw people that were like they were stealing – that Games Workshop was stealing intellectual property from other people. First off, to to those people who said that, you're wrong. Like, they've had that type of helmet for – 15 years yeah since we were in high school yeah because i remember it coming out and i was like i think it's cool right but then people are talking about lore wise would they wear these types of helmets and all of this ridiculous stuff and to to the lore argument people space wolves don't wear helmets yeah exactly unless they're like in vacuum they only wear helmets if they literally cannot live without having a helmet on Uh they hate them yeah, um, and, you know, again, 3D printer go burr. There are plenty of people making better third-party Space Wolf helmets than GW is going to be selling. And GW needs to get that through their head. They cannot keep selling... I don't want to be too much of a pessimist. I, I hate that part of the hobby. But GW needs to get it through their head. They cannot keep charging $30 for a 10-pack of helmets. $20, $30, whatever. It's, it is too much. Yeah, I don't think that that message is ever going to get through, if we're being honest. Um, I, and some people don't have access to 3D printing. Um, I I would say to, to people like that, it's so easy to... You, you If you are participating in this hobby, you know someone who 3D prints right. at this point. It's it's so prevalent. Um, I, you know, I was I was talking about 3D printing with, with a group of people. We were talking about, you know, with the future being that... Maybe Games Workshop should look into selling STLs. That would be, you know, I I, I think that that would be a, a smart move on there. That part. would be interesting. Hey, you want you want Dark Angel's shoulders? Pay us ten bucks, print a million of them. Um, yeah, they're not going to listen to that on us, but they do listen to the podcast. In fact, we found that out when they announced the Leviathan Dreadnought Arms Kit. You know. Yeah, Games Workshop. Thanks for taking our feedback. Yeah, I'm really glad you listened to us on that one. They definitely didn't have that on the works in the works, and we just didn't know about it. Oh, definitely. Confirm. No, no, it was they it was definitely to the us. Yes. Yep. Glad we can be a voice of reason in these trying times. All right. So, well, um, I'm ready to move into the book. What about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I could talk more about squads, but I talked about that last time. I like the new models coming out. Uh, they did release the or preview the emperor's children craters those look kind of neat the one guy doesn't have a mouth or a nose so how is he supposed to snort warp dust if he doesn't have a nose it's uh it's a suppository that makes sense it's the emperor that makes a lot of sense for emperor's children yeah yeah okay so all right let's uh let's take a short break and then we'll uh we'll get into book two false gods Welcome to our review or breakdown of Book Two of the Horus Heresy, False Gods by Graham McNeil. I think this is a pretty solid sequel to Horus Rising. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Graham McNeil. I know he's 
he's one of uh, Ooh, that was that was the top writers for that was library. Just so you just so you all know, before the podcast, Warwick. Was I, I have like, some very. I hate Graham McNeil. He's the worst author of the entire Heresy series. No, 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 no. I never said he was the worst. You, you, you never said he was the worst. Though. John French still exists. Okay, well, we'll get more into that later. And he's certainly not like the worst author for game, uh, for Black Library. Um, I remember the Dawn of War books. Let's not even mention those abominations. It's you know it's it's tough. I I think we we talked about it a little bit in the in the last episode, but I I think it's pretty safe to say, and as you read these books, you'll agree with us that damn Dan Abnett is the best writer in for Black Library in this series. Um, so anybody following up on any of his books, they already have a very tall hill to climb. Right. Um, and and this, this book does fall into a few pitfalls. I Overall, I think it's a good book. Yeah, um, definitely. But I think that there are some issues here, and we're going to get into them. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you're going to keep track of that, because I'll, I'll just try and... Uh, break down the book as best I can and I'll probably gloss over a few things. So uh, definitely pull me back into that and um, shout out real quick, shout out to everyone who gave us feedback on the last episode. We really appreciate it. I, I really want to uh, shout out to Delcar's Delvers. You guys were great. Thanks for checking out the podcast and I'm looking forward to hearing it from you on this one. Yeah, we really, we really do appreciate the feedback. We are just two idiots yelling into microphones so any feedback we can get, we appreciate. Definitely. So the book starts off, they're not super clear on the timeline post Interex dealings. And I'm not really sure about, they don't really talk about what goes on between book one and book two, because they make it seem like they go directly from the Interex to the planet Davin. They have been the well. They they do in at the end of Horus Rising. They talk about they are heading to Davin. So this is they don't really specify if it's like several months or just a few weeks of of warp transit. But there are some things that happen in there that I think we need to talk about. Um, that that I have some issues with. Um, but I'll I'll let you get a little more into the the summary of the book before I I interject with that stuff. So. The Warmaster and his entourage have been, well, the 63rd Expedition, have been summoned to the planet Davin that was previously thought to be a compliant world. And when the Legion turns up, they're greeted by a first chaplain of the Wordbearers, Erebus, who is a character we saw in the last book, who he showed up uh, right at some point in the murder campaign, uh, leading into the Interex dealings. And he initially came with a request for the Warmaster, but he saw how much Horus had on his plate, so he backed off a little bit and kind of stuck around as an advisor. While he was around, he gained this really solid friendship with everybody in the Mournival. Everybody really respects him. You know, he had a... Uh, he dueled with guys in the, the fighting pits and... Uh, everybody respects him as a counselor, a warrior, uh, you know, a tactician. He's he's a real man's man. He everybody loves Erebus so far. And when the sixty third expedition turns up on Davin, Erebus is there waiting for them because he's got some. Well, and and let's let's back up real quick as 
we know that at the end of Horus Rising, that he was responsible for the breakdown of diplomacy with the Interrex as well. We know that he stole the Anathane, and that's important. Right. I figured we would um, find the Anathane where it's at in the story and then back up to it. But that, anyway, um, so while all that's happened, we're introduced to um, a new character. Uh, I'm not sure how important it is, but I'll, I'll introduce him now. Titus Kassar and Jonah Arukin. And these guys are the moderati of the Imperator Titan, Diazire. And a Imperator Titan... Yeah, you know, I, I'm really excited um, that we get this this crew of the Titan. You and I are freaking Titan fanatics. Yes. So, and it, all, all Titans is good Titans. That being said, that's one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about with this book, is what are these two doing here? Yeah. They don't it... service the plot in any way. They do later in, in other books, but introducing them here really doesn't make a lot of sense. So, Graham McNeil... Early on, and it's like the the second uh, chapter or whatever of the book, he introduces this new character, Titus Kassar, who is the Moderati Primus of the Diazire. And an Imperator Titan is, if, if your standard Warhound Titan is like the size of a house, an Imperator Titan is the Empire State Building. They're massive. There's, there's no bigger war machine out there. And so this is a very high-ranking... Uh, Titan commander and McNeil spends like almost a whole chapter kind of describing this guy. You know, he's, he's kind of a rock star because the, the Titan crew are held in such high esteem. And it seems like just a really kind of a waste of paper early on in the book, because like Brandon said, they don't, neither of these Titan guys have contributed anything to the plot yet. But we do find out early on in the book, um, Titus Kassar is a worshiper of the Lecticio Divinitatis. Divinitatis. And Jonah Arukin is kind of on the fence. He's like, he's kind of this dumb jock compared to Kassar. And uh, he knows, Jonah Arukin knows that Titus Kassar is the secret emperor worshiper. But, you know, he keeps it to himself. He doesn't want to cause any friction in the Titan crew. It's a really tight-knit group, so it, it's not worth kind of throwing off their game, so to speak. I think that kind of sums it up, Brandon? Yeah, I think that sums it up really well. Um, and, and I'd like to kind of get into the next part, if, if you don't mind. And I'm going to come back to this okay. and you talking about how it's, it's a bit of a waste right. here. What we see... Um, we leave this Titan crew um, and this, it might've been the first chapter of the book. Like um, just, I think it is the first chapter. Yeah. It's the first chapter. The opening of the book is this Titan crew. Right. Um, and then we get to, then we start moving into other chapters and we leave them. We don't really come back to them hardly at all. Um, not in a significant way, but we do go to the war master. Uh, we go to Horus and his mournable. And what we find out is over the course of this trip, he's become very withdrawn. Um, we see some major shifts in his character. He's not really meeting with the mournable anymore. We find out that he's he's only really been taking counsel from Erebus, um, which is concerning considering that he's not even a part of the actual legion. Um, and we see a lot of 
arrogance emerge, which there was a hint of arrogance in, in False Gods, or, or sorry, in Horus Rising, certainly. Um, but it's on a whole nother level here. And I know that we talked about this before we had started recording was it, it was such a major shift to his character that I almost felt like there needed to be another book in between Horus Rising and this book. But certainly they could have used that first chapter to uh, to lay the groundwork for that. Um, right. Because it's it's almost like we're not even talking about the same guy anymore. So that kind of plays into something I want to talk about, kind of the breakdown between the books, how it's, to me, the transition is not good. Because in this scene describing the, the going on, goings on with the Titan and all that, uh, Titus Kassar is talking about how the Titan crews are still repairing battle damage from the Megarachnid. And that was on murder. And we know that the Titans were deployed on murder. But the thing that bothers me is that Horus spent months dealing with the Interrex. I don't know that it was months. Um, it was a long time. It was, yeah, I mean, I guess, a, yeah. I'm pretty months. sure Abnett says it was a couple of months um, dealing on one of their outpost worlds, and then they go further into Interrex space to actually talk to the, the higher officials. Grant McNeil also goes on to say that Astartes are still repairing battle damage from the Megarachnid War. I don't feel like the timelines really mesh there because they would have had plenty of time to repair that when all the diplomacy was going on with the Interrex, right? Yeah, there, there's definitely some continuity issues. Um, I kind of overlook that because what's more concerning to me is that we see some major character shifts uh, in, in this time between books. And again, it's a 54 book series. You're really telling me that we couldn't have a book to explain this, this character shift that, that takes place here, but we're just kind of forced to accept it. Like Loken doesn't act quite the same. And again, I understand that it's different authors and they are going to write these characters a little bit differently. It's something we're going to see across the entire series. Um, but I, I think a little bit more care, particularly since a lot of once we get out of these first five books, really, we start to jump around a lot. So there I mean, there's continuity issues in that. But I think because these first five are kind of so closely knit together, the continuity issues become really shining. In, in that situation. So I, I think my point there is that the, the continuity issue can kind of be fixed if they had, instead of saying that they're repairing battle damage from the Megarachnid, they're repairing battle damage from annexing Interrex territory and that this this other war with this, uh, this human race really tore out uh, Horus's heart and that's why he's become so withdrawn. Just like if that had been the chapter instead of, oh, this is the Titan crew, one of them is an emperor botherer, and the other one is, you know, just this drunk jock that shows up to work on over, um, that it would just make that the chat, like make the the uh, Interrex annexation just the chapter, and that's what happens with the Interrex. Because we never see them again, to my knowledge. I, I think I'm 50 books in so far on my own, and they never talk about the Interrex again. When they were a pretty it, formidable... It's briefly mentioned... It's briefly mentioned at the end of this book how they were wiped out. 
but it's it's just mentioned in passing. Uh, I think I may have missed that. I was on the road when I listened to it, I think. But yeah. you can lay that one out for me. Um, no, I mean, that's it. That's it. It was just briefly mentioned of like, um, we'll get to it, but when they're talking about the Aurasian technocracy mm-hmm. and unnecessary wars, Loken mentions how this one was unnecessary, just like the Interax. Okay. And, but that's it. That's all you get. So, so even, so that tells me that the Interacts were never dealt with. It's just that the War Master finds himself in this conflict and just leaves. You know, and somebody else do it. It's fine. We, we, well, we know that they're dealt with because they don't exist in 40K. Fair enough. Yeah. We, we know that in, in some way they are dealt with. But, I mean, that's a completely valid criticism of it. that is not a legitimate reason. That is not how you write a entire species out of a story. Especially because Horace was so upset that talks with the Interrex broke down so quickly, is that, that that should have been part of the story, is that that's what, that's what caused this big shift in the War Master, was that he, he hated going to war with other humans. So I, I think it just it, it should have been part of the book. Well, and you know what? I agree with that, and I think that that would have been made it great when we see the major shift that happens at the end of the book to the War Master's character. That just would have drilled it in that much harder. Right. Um, but we'll we'll get there when we get there. So we're in this tra- uh, this tra- warp transit to to Davin, um, which is uh, designated sixty three eight, being the eighth world brought into compliance by the sixty third expedition, um, and we get a little bit of background on the planet. Um, particularly around their warrior lodges, which we spoke about in, in the last book. Uh, that is what this planet is where those warrior lodges kind of came from. But in, in that time, you know, we, we get to sit down with, with Loken and, and kind of hear where he's at. And there's a lot of like, a, again, a shift in his character of like a lot of that hope seems to be gone of like this war is going to end. Now we, we get this idea that he's like, well, the, the fighting will never end. Uh, we are going to be at war for the rest of our lives. Again, major shifts in his his character, his character, the War Master's character. I think that those are the main two that you really feel. Um, none of them are written exactly the same, but well, again, we expect that with even, a different author. Even Abaddon seems a little like he's just he's hostile the whole time. Um, well, most of the time, there's there's a couple of scenes where he's buddy buddy with the rest of the Mournival again, but for the most part, he seems like he's hostile to Loken right off right out of the gate. It's just a little annoying. It there's 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 a little bit of character tension gets built up between him and Loken throughout the book, but I think right out of the gate, it's handed it handled a little ham handedly. But that's I mean, we'll get into that. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, I know that it doesn't occur uh, um do we want to talk about the the conversation between erebus and loken so this occurs later in the book um it's still in this first part Mm -hmm. but it's more told from a flashback perspective but i think since it happens here we can talk about it now yeah go ahead um so loken comes to to erebus and um he starts talking to him about the warp and the things that kind of dwell within the warp uh we know that loken knows that there's more to the warp than the imperial truth would have you believe um and he says you know the the word bearers are the you know they're known for their scholarly pursuits they are literally known for being learned that's kind of their thing 
Erebus himself has the has the scripture of the word of Lorgar tattooed on his skin. But he asks him, you know, like what what do the word bearers know about the warp? And Erebus just kind of says, "Oh, there's nothing in the warp. You don't need to worry about that. Yeah, like, all the, there's nothing at all. All the ancient tomes you've been finding in the the ship's library that's that's just." You know, fanciful tales that have been embellished over centuries, and it's nothing to worry about, Garville. You'll be fine. Yeah, and and then they start to talk a little bit about his conversation with the uh, with the Interrex captain, with Glokin's conversation with the Interrex captain right before everything went to hell. And uh, Erebus says something really interesting, which he talks about. Oh, nobody stole a sword from the hall of devices or something to that extent and after this conversation ends loken says nope they never said what was stolen right they just said red alarm bells are going off yeah loken is suspicious right away so the expedition makes its way down to the planet and they are immediately greeted by erebus you know, because nobody summons the War Master, but somehow we we should mention that uh, Erebus at one point while they're in transit, he takes a smaller craft that can move faster, and he goes out ahead, right. and and that's why they meet him there. Right. So he gets there beforehand, and um, we have to wonder like why did he need to get there first? But we'll find out in a little bit. Now. Erebus kind of puts this little powwow together of the Mornival, uh, the Warmaster, and himself, and there I think there's like some local warriors there too. And Erebus says very specifically the uh, commander general that Horus appointed to be planetary governor has rebelled against Horus. And that's really specific because this is not Horus's empire, this is the Emperor's Imperium. And Erebus is really manipulative in this conversation, really stoking up Horus's anger against uh, this planetary governor. Yugen uh, Timber is the man's name. Erebus says, Yugen Timber has rebelled against you, my war master. And Horus kind of comes unglued at this, which isn't really like him. And I think that's a, a pretty big, um, a pretty big character deviation. What do you think? Well, and I think it plays into again what we talked about earlier of this this character shift has happened in Horus, and we know this by this point of that he's become very arrogant and proud, um, rather than he's still very charismatic, but we're seeing a lot more of the arrogance and the pride. And again, I think that's where a little bit more time could have been taken to establish of these kind of this hubris taking charge here. But that's, that's what we're seeing. And that's what Erebus is seemingly stoking. Right. Um, but we, we do, we, and we get a, we get a view of this because Loken has brought um, Ignace Carcassi, a remembrancer who is a poet that is being sponsored by Loken. We talked about him a little bit in the last book to really observe Erebus because Loken doesn't trust him. And what Erebus says is that this planetary governor has fortified Davin's moon um, and 
spent on his oaths and all of this stuff and that and uh, you're right he very specifically he says he's rebelled against you not the emperor not the imperium he's rebelled against you um which is this specifically designed to to stoke horus's pride and arrogance um but in this conversation later with uh you know um Loken has asked Ignace to to observe Erebus, and he says to him, I, I don't know why, but Erebus absolutely wants the Warmaster on Davin's moon. Right. No matter what. that That is what his goal was in this conversation. Ignace says very specifically, that wasn't really a briefing, that was a performance. Yeah, he says, uh, he starts to talk about some actress that isn't really relevant at all, but he says, but... You know, she's the greatest actress I've ever seen, and she couldn't hold a candle to Erebus. That was a masterful performance. Right. And, and so, again, Loken is incredibly suspicious at this point. Right. And so Loken had Igneous there because, like, the, the Astartes aren't, like, socially versed. So he wanted to bring along, like, a real people person, so like, a social observer. So he brings uh, Igneous along. Now... It, it should be we, uh, one thing that we need to point out is that uh, in the meeting, when Abaddon and Erebus go to switch hands or uh, go to shake hands, something passes between them and Igneus sees it. And it was a little flash of silver. And so after the, the meeting is dispersed, Loken is in the lodge talking to Igneus there alone. And then Abaddon comes back in and starts kind of hounding Loken about, you know, you know, you don't spend enough time with warriors anymore. You're hanging out with these scriveners and poets and, you know, it's it's hurting your warrior's soul or whatever. And Igneus says something, um, First Captain, may I ask, what passed between uh, you and Erebus uh, when you shook hands? Was it a lodge medal or something like that? And Abaddon almost kills Igneus over this because he feels so insulted. And Loken has to hold him back because... Loken knows you need to stop Astartes from committing murder, which is uh, is really important later on in the book because the Astartes they have to prove their superiority every day, and they have to they're held to a much higher they're held to a superhuman standard, right? So yeah, they they really need to hold themselves in check. But Loken kind of feels this shift, you know, now that the the Remembrancers are kind of plugged into the fleet that um, the Astartes are, like, they're really hateful towards these uh, art artists. And it's uh, it, it's becoming, building a lot of tension inside the expeditionary fleets. Yeah, and the important part of that conversation to me is when Loken asks Abaddon, oh, did you guys make Erebus a member of the Lodge? And we find out, no, Erebus founded the Lodge. He made the lodge. We all joined because of him, which is very important right. later. And, and we find it's out very telling. We find out later on that during the compliance of Davin, it was a um, it was a multi legion effort between the Luna Wolves and the Wordbearers, and Erebus was there during the initial conquest. And after the compliance was confirmed, Erebus stuck around for a while to make sure that there was no taint uh, in these people. And it's funny because Erebus is a taint. Yeah, he he really 
he thrives in the taint, so to speak. So he sticks around for quite a while and ends up finding some things that are very useful to him, uh, you know, later on. All right. Well, should we should we jump to part two, uh, Plague Moon? Yes. This part is really gross. Um, yep. Not the grossest part of the Horus Heresy, actually. Like it's it's disgusting, but there are not at all. Not at all. The Emperor's children exist. Worse things to come. Yeah. <laughs> in more ways than one. Okay, so um, go ahead. Can can I take it from here a bit? Um, Lead away. So this this big affront to the War Master's honor has been suffered, and he is just on the warpath. And we're talking about you know their their intelligence says you know he's got a this this guy Yugen Timber this governor who rebelled, he's got a few army regiments and maybe a couple of ships. Horus de- deploys just a massive overkill to deal with this he has got four full companies of astartes that he is personally leading he has got like battalions and battalions of the imperial army that are landing as well as three titans from the legio mortis an imperator which as we discussed is the biggest titan that you can have and then two warlords which are the ones right below that so i mean this when i say overkill I mean, this he brought enough force to conquer an entire planet to deal with a couple of army regiments. Like, and, and I, it, it plays again to this, this idea that he's very, very arrogant and feels this, like, personal insult to his pride and honor. Um, and because during this time, during this time, this lead up to them uh, getting ready to deploy... His his Mortable is telling them that you you shouldn't be going on this. Um, this is something we can handle. You don't need to to put yourself in harm's way. And Horus is like, there is not a chance on Earth that I am not going on this mission. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm the War Master, but he is just he is dead set on it. Um, should we talk a little bit about his documentarist? Because that's a new character for this book. Yeah, so I was just thinking about that. Um, she is a character that we could probably completely gloss over because she doesn't add a whole lot. Like, she is there. But um, this... That's fair. This this woman shows up, and uh, I have to look up her name because I have forgotten. Uh, Petronella Vivar shows up, and it turns out that her family documented the emperor as he was conquering Terra. So like she's got some really strong connections. One of them being Melkador, the Sigilite, who is the emperor's like number two guy. That's not a Primarch. He's just like a regular dude. So Petronilla Vivar shows up and is like, I want to document the war master because you know, my family documented his dad or whatever. And so like the, most of the other Astartes are really annoyed by this because, like, the, the, the War Master doesn't need some scribe following him around. And Horus kind of entertains the idea, and he's like, eh, whatever. It, it can't hurt anything. Let her stick around. She's a rider. It can't be that annoying. She's got this bodyguard with her, which I'll talk about the bodyguard for a minute. This bodyguard's name is Magard, and the house has their bodyguard's tongues cut out, or their their vocal cords snipped so that they can't talk, which 
doesn't make any sense to me because if you are charging somebody with your security, don't you want them to be able to communicate? It's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. So um, I was thinking... And of... like the justification is that he shouldn't speak in the presence of his lady. I'm like, you might want to let her know that like somebody's trying to blow her brains out. Yeah, which... What do I know? <laughs> it's it's really dumb, but it's exactly the the kind of thing you would find in 40k. Like it doesn't make any sense, but they're doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, well, oh, he he does have this this special sword called a Curlian rapier that apparently severs the body's connection to the soul. That kind of comes into play later, but it's not very consequential. So. Uh, moving on, um, the the spear tip is getting ready to deploy to the moon, and she says, "I want to accompany the war master." And the war master's like, "No, it's a war zone. You are like eighty five pounds. Stay on the ship." Well, she doesn't listen when the spear tip deploys. She gets in her personal shuttle and tries to make planet fall. Well, anyway, moving on to the action. The spear tip touches down, and their initial reports say that the moon is supposed to be arid and have, like, some forests on it, basically. The the part they were on were supposed to be, like, heavily wooded. And it was supposed to be dry. Well, they land in a swamp that wasn't on any of their, like, topography records or anything. And they're trudging through the slime when they, they, um... So they're trudging through the slime and they are wondering where all the enemy army troopers are supposed to be. Well, they get to kicking around in the muck and they find a body in the uniform of Yugen Timber's men. And as Loken is examining one, its eyes fill with balefire and it reaches up to grasp his neck and try to choke the life out of him. And nothing like this has ever been seen in the Great Crusades before, to anyone's knowledge. It's totally unthinkable. The Dead Rising, it's insane. And this happens everywhere all at once in this big swamp. The entire detachment is immediately swarmed with these plague-ridden zombies and skeletons and something else that they can't really identify. There are these big, bloated, distended bodies that are shambling around, they hit like a Mack truck, and Astartes are dying left and right. It is it is a horrifying experience. The, the fog is so thick on this battlefield that uh, they're having, the Astartes are having trouble, like, confirming targets, because it's, uh, um, the, the fog is so thick. So Because it's gross outside. It's very gross outside. So, the spear tip is being swarmed. And in the middle of this fight, um, the Diazire is walking through the battlefield and it picks up a, a hard return on an aircraft coming in low and fast. And they get ready to shoot it down. And as it comes into view, it is Petronella Vivar's personal civilian shuttle, which ends up making a crash landing and so now her and her bodyguard are stranded out in this battlefield, surrounded by plague zombies in uh, what what we as tabletop players know are uh, plague bearers of Nurgle. 
Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah they, they and they, I mean they straight get shot the fuck down. Um, and it was really, really stupid of them to show up there. Right. But it, it ends up being a good thing overall. Because the crash site gives all the sons of Horus, they're like, oh, we can converge on this position, so now we all know where each yeah. other are. There's this big fire out in the middle of nowhere. Let's get there. Oh, and one thing that I forgot to mention. As soon as the spear tip breaches the moon's atmosphere, a radio signal starts to come across their vox. And it is, it is a signal that is so powerful that they cannot jam it. They cannot block it out. It is just bleeding into their Vox com, or their comm network. And it is saying um, something like, the end is near, hail the power of Nurglith. And Loken immediately gets this, like, this horrible, familiar sensation, just like what, because this is very similar than what happened, then this is very similar to what happened at the Whisperheads with the demon Samus. He doesn't know it's a demon. He thinks it's, you know, some wild warp beast or something like that. He doesn't really know what to make of it yet, but he is immediately super nervous about this. So rewind the shuttle crashes. The sons of Horus are able to converge on this crash site. We find out while Maggard is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but it, it's important. Magar Maggard does distinguish himself in this combat. He fights off a ton of these plague zombies by himself before the Astartes arrive. Right. And, you know, Horus is kind of the first on the scene. He finds Petronella, uh, you know, cowering in the wreck of her ship. He sees that Maggard has, has defended himself and his mistress very, uh, very well. He notices that the this uh, curly and rapier that he has is just cutting down these plague zombies and uh, plague bears left and right with total ease. It's the, the slightest scratch from this thing is killing these uh, monsters right away. And so Horace talks a little bit about that, asks about the weapon. And, um, you know, Petronella's saved. Yippee, yay, woohoo, great. And then the the Legion is able to consolidate there and push forward. The fighting kind of dies down a little bit, and they eventually come upon the wreck of what they immediately identify as Yugen Timber's flagship, the, was it the Glory of Terra? The glory of Terra, yeah. Uh, it's th this is not a ship that should have ever entered atmosphere, and it has crash landed on uh, Davin or on Davin's moon. Right. Um, so it's it. I mean, it sticks out. So they immediately identify that this mysterious Vox signal that is blowing through all their jamming is coming from the ship. So Horus says, "Well, maybe." Um, we definitely need to get on board there and see what's going on. Um, and they know that it's not a automated signal because it's the kind of thing that has to be triggered by someone manually. They're able to put, they explain it a little better in the, in the book, but I forget how it goes, but well, they know it's not an automated signal because it only starts when they hit atmosphere. Right. So it hasn't been running the whole time. Uh, it, you know, clearly somebody turned, turned on the radio. Now, Horus is all gung-ho to, to get on the ship, do a boarding action, and to kind of appreciate the scale of it, um, Horus's flagship holds, what, like 20 companies of space marines? It's huge. It's, it's, it's massive. one of the biggest. This is, this is another capital ship, and Horus only brought four companies of space marines to board it, 
and you know they're gonna need somebody to defend it while the others are in there in case they get attacked by ravenous swamp zombies again real quick shout out to my star wars fans out there my fans of all three star wars movies all three um yeah because they only made three anyway um an imperial star destroyer is like an ant on the back of a warhammer capital ship these things are just everything when, when it's the warhammer universe it's fucking huge that's just the best way to put it anything to take scale toss that shit out the window right. that's gone there's there's always a bigger ship in 40k so this is a massive ship. It's a pretty big, it's it's a really tall order for four companies to defend and, you know, kind of clear this wreck. So, you know, Loken is like, Horace, you are crazy. We cannot do this. You know, it's insane. But he doesn't say that. He's, he's more tactful. He goes... He's more tactful, but he does kind of tell him, like, hey, you're not thinking clearly. Um, you've taken this way too personally. You shouldn't even be here. And this... This scene in the book, it's one of my favorites in this whole book because this is so true to the character that was established in the last book of being a straight shooter. This is exactly who Garvey Loken is supposed to be. Right. And there are parts of this book where I don't really feel that, but right here, man, I really think he nailed that. Yeah. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole book is, is this talk right here. It's not even that long or significant, but I just – it's so true to character. Absolutely. Yeah, I really yeah, I really agree there. So Loken's not able to talk him out of this crazy scheme, but he does say, look, at least make this one concession. We have three of the most powerful war machines in the galaxy backing us up. Let them take a run at it, you know, fire off, you know, pop off a couple of rounds and soften this thing up. And then then it's your call. Then we can, you know, board it and do whatever. Yeah, and, you know, again, while I love this conversation between Horus and Loken, I do feel like it, it does say that, you know, Horus does relent and he allows this to happen. To me, this is literally just written in to justify the Titans being there. Yeah. Because they serve no fucking purpose beyond that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really frustrates me because I love Titans so much. But it just feels like we were looking for, like, I don't know how Black Library works. I know, Quick tangent, real quick. Go ahead. Um, because I had this conversation recently. Black Library exists to sell models. Anybody who is, like, talking about the quality of storytelling and stuff, that needs to... I'm, I'm all about quality of storytelling. This company, Black Library, or this subsidiary, however the hell it, it's framed out... This exists to sell models. This is to get people into the game. Right. And this and and the Horus Heresy is one of the better where this doesn't happen a lot, but this feels like a hey, Titans are cool. You need to talk about Titans. You need to write them into your book. Right. That's why it feels like they're here. Yeah, definitely because in the in the scene, uh, McNeil doesn't paint a great picture about what happens here. He says, and then the Titans shot the ship. He doesn't. He doesn't specify, like, they aimed for the command bridge to, to make sure that there's no way the ship can activate. Or they aim for the engines to make sure that it doesn't just take off. Or they aim for the, the comms relays because that signal is really annoying right now. 
they just you they know, shoot. I don't, I don't want to ding McNeil too hard here, um, because we're gonna see in other books as well, Titans not Titan combat specifically not being written very well in my opinion there's one exception that i have seen in my readings and that's titan death that's the second to last book okay i have not gotten into that one yet well i yeah titan death is all titans right so but they get it right other than that though it's and and i think i think the reason they get it right there we're getting so off topic but the reason they get it right there is because it's titan versus titan Right. When it's something like a Titan, it's very hard to write Titan combat well because they can and should wreck everything in front of them when it's not another Titan. Right. So the the Titans rip off a couple of broadsides and soften up the ship, which we'll see how that goes. And Horus commands Loken and Torgadden to hold the line at the base of the ship and he, along with, uh, was it Varula Moy and uh, Kylas Ekadon? Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's Varula Moy and Kylas Ekadon uh, that that enter with with the War Master because Ekadon uh, leads kind of an assault company, and Varula Moy runs a special weapons company. So Varula Moy is bringing Meltas and Flamers to clear corridors and bulkheads. And Ekadon is there uh, for the close-in fighting, assuming there will be some. When you're when you're boarding uh, a vessel, or you know, like Brandon, you could probably talk about maybe like uh, clearing tight quarters like that. You want those are the kind of guys you want with you, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if we want to talk real military stuff, it's a little bit different, obviously, because the Astartes are pretty cavalier on committing war crimes. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, like, so when you but, were in the army, yes, there was probably a pretty specific rule. Don't use chainsaws on the enemy. That's not a thing in 40 K. No, 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 that's <laughs> not a thing. Yeah. They have the fun stuff, but yeah, yeah, no, there there's protocols, right? When you're entering a tight quartered space, these are the type of weapons you want. And when you have access to these things, like a flamethrower, a flamethrower is a hell of a weapon in a hallway. Yeah. So, yeah, you would want that. But I think we're we're missing the point here. He didn't just bring these guys because the, the of their weapon loadout. Or maybe he did. It really doesn't matter because what the way it's perceived is he leaves Torgadon and he leaves Loken behind. And it's perceived as a slight. Because Torgadon and Loken are supposed to be his, like, two of his most trusted advisors. They're part of the Mornival. We, we should also mention the other two of the Mornival who are there, they go in with the War Master. Right. It's only Torgadon's company and Loken's company that are left outside. Right. So they get in, they, uh, they are exploring the ship a little bit. They're making their way towards the command bridge because that's where the... Um, presumably that's where the controls are to shut down the signal. Maybe they'll find some answers in the data banks or whatever. Um, but they're about halfway through the ship, I think, when it powers up, lifts itself um, maybe half a kilometer in the air, shuts off its repulsor engines, and drops back down to the surface. Yeah, it's a hell of a thing. And, I mean, it absolutely rocks everybody inside and outside. Um, and 
at this point, once that happens, it uh, we 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 jump to Horus, and Horus is alone. Horus gets separated from his cohort. Yeah, yeah, he does, and this is our first time really in the book of getting a Primarch perspective, and I think it's done pretty pretty decently. Yeah, it's not bad. There there are some areas in the Horus Heresy where Primarch perspective writing is really bad, um, because how do you relate to a 10-foot-tall immortal god of war? Um, but I think it, it's done fairly well here, but what we find is that Horus comes under attack to, from more of these plague zombies and demons and he just he kind of mows right through them um he's got he's got his sword does he have a gun i don't think he's got a gun at this point if he does have a gun he doesn't use it because he just uses um this this golden sword that his brother one of the other primarchs ferris manis made for him can we talk for two seconds here um why does ferris manis make everybody's weapon vulcan is the craftsman yeah, so that that is that is a, a dumb weird thing. It's like Vulcan's whole whole thing was like he was raised a blacksmith by a blacksmith, and he was he was kind of designed to be the emperor's armorer. But Ferris Manus is the one like always making cool stuff and then handing it out to his brothers. Yeah, he literally makes everybody's weapon, even though Vulcan is that's the salamanders like that's their thing, other than being nice guys. Yeah, um, like Lorgar has like the the Crozius in 40k that came from Lorgar because Ferris Manus made him this this big like winged club thing. Uh, so that that is a product of Ferris Manus. Ferris Manus also made uh, Vol- uh, Fulgrim's uh, fire fire blade. Yes, he made Horus's golden sword. Uh, it, I'm sure there are other examples out there, but that's no. There's that's... definitely more. Oh, he's made. More. He made he made a top loading pistol for Vulcan, uh, which was kind of funny. Um, he might've made something for Korax. I don't remember now, but just kind of, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole nother book where we can talk about this. Anyway, back on, back on topic. Um, Horus mows through these plague zombies and he eventually makes his way up to the command bridge on his own. Unfortunately, he wasn't the first person there. Yep. The first, the first person there was, uh, and Moy who we find slain at the feet of what was once Yugen Timber, and now is a bloated, diseased, disgusting fat body. Who's not dead. He, uh, he was aboard the ship the whole time, and he has, you know, Horus immediately notices that uh, Verula Moy's neck has been snapped. And that is like, uh, y- you know, that would be like a... Um, Somebody trying to break an Astartes neck, like a regular human trying to break an Astartes neck, is like trying to pull an oak tree out of the ground. It's not going to happen. So Yugen Timber was just a regular dude when Horus left. But now he's become this this disgust, giant disgusting monster with apparently superhuman strength at this point. So they have a little bit of dialogue. Um... Horus is like, you know, you're going to pay for your betrayal. And Yugen Timber's like, no, my eyes have been open. I'm going to, you know, lay you low and, uh, uh, you know, more or less illuminate the rest of the galaxy. Yeah, he, he, he really hits on, like, I've seen the truth of the galaxy. 
um, I've seen beyond um, the the you know the weak imperial truth, um, and he they they end up fighting, um, and he's got a sword, and right before they start fighting, he holds the sword up and he says the War Master Horus, and then they start fighting. Now Horus also notices that he knew Yugen Timber was never any kind of swordsman. He was a commander of men. It's a very different kind of uh, kind of warrior. And he notices in the fight that these aren't really Yugen Timber's motions or like sword strokes. It seems to be he's fighting the very sword itself. And there are a couple of close calls because and it's it's not really expected because this was just supposed to be some dude some regular Joe Schmo against the most sophisticated killing engine in the galaxy. And it's a close fight. And, and Horus is, you know, I don't want to say he's afraid, but it is, it is certainly something, you know, inconceivable from his perspective. Yeah. More surprised. I would say, um, he's very surprised cause he's like, this is like a taxing fight to him. Um, he, he does end up winning obviously, um, but he's wounded. Uh, he gets stabbed in the shoulder. He takes a puncture wound, I believe, not from the sword, uh, but to his chest. But then the sword cuts him in his shoulder. But he ends up being able to kill Timber, who at this point says, Oh, I, I have lost my way. Um, I've damned my soul. And he says to, to Horace, like, You alone can stop this. Uh, this madness functionally Um, he's like you need to stay true and all of this stuff um, as he's dying Um, Timber passes um, and Horus weeps and that's where he's found on the deck is that he he weeps um, and and Abaddon and Aximand find him and they see that he's wounded and they want to like carry him out of the ship and he's like hell no I will walk out of this thing Oh, and it, it, it should be said, real quick, that while all of this is going on, after the ship crashes back down onto the moon, the guys standing sentry outside are once again attacked by plague zombies. After the fight with Yugen Timber, Horus uh, severs the connection to the comm system on the ship, and once the signal stops, all the zombies drop dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's important to mention like it was a very very intense fight. Like it talks about they ran out of ammo. Um, for right. the Astartes to run out of ammo is a hell of a fight, and they're fighting with swords and fists. And uh, Loken talks about like, okay, this is where we're going to die. Um, like they believe that, and even the Titans are coming in. And I mean, this world-ending level of firepower is being brought onto this horde of zombies, and it's not enough. Um, but once that signal's cut, they're just gone. Right. So the Warmaster is able to walk out of the ship under his own steam. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it, it's that big a deal. He got nicked in the shoulder. Um, it did destroy his shoulder guard. He got he took a flesh wound to the shoulder, which doesn't seem life-threatening. But as he gets out into the open, um, his remembrancer lady, um, I forget, uh, Petronella, sees him, and you know she approaches him and goes, "Oh, War Master, you're so handsome. You won, yay, whoopee!" And as Horus is making his way to his dropship, he collapses, 
which is unthinkable. The, the War Master could never fall. They're immortal gods of war. How could this ever happen? What could lay a Primarch low? And so he is rushed back to the Vengeful Spirit, the flagship, and they get him to medical aid. But on the way there, the Mornival is so panicked. They've never seen anything like this. They're, when they land on the embarkation deck, there are civilians, remembrancers, crewmen gathered around to see the triumphant return of the War Master. And the, the Mournival is so freaked out that the War Master is hurt. They plow through this crowd. They kill dozens of civilians in this sheer panic. And this causes a ripple through the, you know, a, this pretty substantial thing through the rest of the book. Because as we said earlier, the Astartes have to be held to a much higher standard. Well, and let's let's talk about this. First off, um, you missed the point. The, the rumor had come back to the ship that the War Master was dead. Oh, yeah. That that And that's why everybody was rushing to the embarkation deck. Um, and let's talk about this for a bit, because this is a big scene in the book. Um, they plow right through all these guys and, and, and kill them. I'm curious to really – I want to hear your thoughts on this, and then I'll share some of mine. Well, in the absolute panic, like, I don't know why it's curious. I've, I've got a lot of thoughts on this, but it's hard to piece, piece them all together. Dumb civilians shouldn't have been on an, a military embarkation deck. Um, there should have been word sent ahead that the um, uh, the crewmen, what am I thinking of, the, um, the orderlies that, that keep people out of the way, what am I thinking of? Yeah, like just uh, like the deck crew. Yeah, the deck crew should have been keeping the crowd back. Like if if the war master is hurt or dead, people should know to stay out of the way because they're probably going to try and get him to an infirmary or something. Um, I, I'm not sure why they were gathered in such numbers. It seems kind of dumb to me, but it, maybe the shock was overwhelming. I don't know. Um, the Mournival's panic is completely understandable. Um, their brutality. I think that kind of gets rolled into they are so used to killing and seeing death on on a um, on a very personal level that plowing through a crowd of civilians is just another day ending in white. Maybe not imperial civilians, but, you know, I'm sure they've they've been forced to kill unar unarmored targets before. Yeah. Um, and, and my opinion coming from this from a, you know, a military veteran background is when you mix military operations and civilians, it never goes well, ever. Um, so, but I also, again, understanding, you know, a military side, as the service member, you are absolutely looked at to, you should be exemplifying these values always. So it's, it's understandable uh, that, they, they plowed through these people because they're in a military operation right now and they have a casualty. Nothing else matters. They have to get that casualty to medical aid immediately. Right. Um, you should not, you're, you will, you will be held responsible for your actions in that. So if somebody dies, um, if a civilian dies in that process uh, and you could have prevented it, you, you will be held responsible. They might look at you and say, I understand what you were going through, not an excuse. And that's, that's kind of where it lines up. So I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on it. Cause on one hand, like I totally see where, where they're coming from. And it, this is, I mean, this is why you shouldn't have civilians 
in your military operations areas at all because they get in the way. That's what they do. They don't know what they're doing. And rewind rewind to the to the first book. There's a very specific in the beginning, they're they're talking about how the remembrancers are only allowed onto the embarkation deck very briefly under heavy supervision. This this would not have happened a year or so ago. But the the whole civilian military um kind of restrictions have broken down so much in the past year that the civilians are just like, ah, we're going to go where we want, but you know, nothing's bad. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. The, the studies are overreacting. It's whatever, but it really comes to bite them in the ass here. It's worth mentioning as well that they were in a panic. They thought the war master was dead. Right. Like, and this is something that they're just like, this is completely unheard of. Like this, this can't be happening type deal. Um, but we get a view of this, I mean, for lack of a better term, massacre on the embarkation deck um, from our, our good friend Car- uh, Ignace Carcassi, um, a- along with Mercedes Ullerton, who is Loken's personal remembrance. Or we haven't really talked about her that much because she hasn't been that relevant. Um, she's more so just a plot device to get us Loken's thoughts. To get us Loken's thoughts, and she kind of comes full circle um... – and later on in one of the other books. So Yeah. But we see it from their perspective. They're on an observation deck above and they're just disgusted. Well, especially Carcassy. He's just disgusted right. with what he sees and he's like the the Astarte should be held to account for this. Again, I I'm of two minds on it because yes, you have to live up to that standard, you know, you're the you're the superhuman here. You, and, and, you know, even a regular military service member, you have to uphold a higher standard. Um, but I also see where they're coming from of like we have people in the way be damned. We are getting to that apothecarium. Right. So it's it's I think that the best way to put this is nobody's right. Yeah, exactly. And so this has some some interesting consequences because the remembrancers are not the only ones hurt or um disgusted by this the um the human like the regular standard army commander hector varvarus is disgusted by this as, as well and he's like heads need to roll somebody needs to be held accountable for these deaths and you know he's barking at uh, horses equerry malagers the whole time like something has to be done about this this is unacceptable and so he says that he has sent a missive to the Council of Terra, that you know the, the War Masters uh, Astartes have been have k- killed civilians, and he is just really rocking the boat on this, and you know Malagurst is getting pretty ups- you know pretty annoyed with it, pretty angry about it because you know like the the War Master was hurt to him, it's just like something had to be done, civilians be damned. Yep. So we uh, we get to the apothecarium and we we take the point of view of this apothecary who's working on uh keeping horace alive um, chief apothecary vadden chief apothecary vadden um and he's got to deal with i mean it's an intense situation not only does he have the war master on his table but he's got the mornival and particularly abaddon just raging like a psycho over he's got to do more um, the Mornival ends up having to restrain him and pull him out of, of the Apothecarian. But he explains, like, we're like children trying to understand biology. Like, 
only the emperor truly understands the physiology of a primarch um we're doing what we can here but we really we don't know what we're doing and we may not even have the technology to be doing this because a primarch is at a primarch's physiology is as complicated to an astartes as astartes physiology is to a regular human so per perfect example here is um on a, 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 a space marine and astartes they have three lungs right uh, they they have two their two primary lungs and then they've got a third lung, um, one so that they can run farther for longer. It just takes their cardio through the roof, um, but also you know if one of their other lungs becomes damaged, uh, they can they have a third as a backup. Right. Primarchs only have two. It's just they're so much no, better that no. they can literally breathe toxins. I think Vadim says that he's got a secondary set of lungs, so he doesn't have he doesn't have one extra lung. He has two extra lungs. He's got a full set. And oh, it, yeah. because his, his um, pulmonary system has sealed itself off so that his primary lungs can heal. Cause he did get stabbed in the chest. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it. But the, the point is, is like, it's, they don't have any idea what they're doing. Right. So, uh, chief apothecary Vadden is able to stabilize him temporarily. You know, things kind of cool down for just a second. Uh, talking to the apothecary, Loken finds out that there's some kind of specifically tailored poison that is killing the Primarch. And as soon as it got into his system, because they circulate blood so much more efficiently, as soon as it got into his bloodstream, it, it basically killed him there on the spot. But they've got him stabilized for now. They're, they're doing all that they can. And Loken says, well, uh, maybe some of us should go back down to the, to, to the, uh, to the ship and see if they could find anything that might kind of shed some light on what hurt the war master. So um, Loken and some of his like, you know, like a chosen squad or two and Torgadden and some of his men along with uh, one of the other captains, it was Tybalt, uh, Tybalt it Mar. was Tybalt Mar who was Varilla Moy's best friend. Now, Tibbetmar, they were twins. They were called the either or the or. So the either and the or. Because they, they looked just like one another. They were sons of Horus. They looked just like Horus as well. So they were, and they had like this really, uh, really well meshing kind of combat dynamic. They really complemented each other super well. So the three of them make planet fall and investigate, you know, where the fight happened. And they find, Loken finds a, wooden box with a velvet lining and it has very familiar runes on one side and they're familiar to him, but he can't quite place them right away. He gets to thinking about it though. And while he's doing that, um, I can't remember if it's Verulam or Tarek finds Yugen's severed arm. And in the arm is still clutched the sword he used in the fight, which they recognize as the Anathane. The Anathame, because they saw these in the Hall of Devices in Interrex space. And Loken uh, immediately puts together the runes on the side of this casket are Kinnebrak runes. The Kinnebrak were the indentured uh, race of the Interrex. There were aliens that forged these sentient weapons that could, they, um, they became the, the nemesis of their foe. So that is why Yugen Timber said the Warmaster Horus before he started the fight. Because then that activates the weapon and it kills, you know, the target as soon as it comes in contact with it. 
yeah, it even talks about when Loken picks up the Anathane, and uh, he's talking to Torgaddon, and he says his name, and he feels it. Like, he's like, I could kill him with this sword right now. Like, it would take nothing. Right. So they get it boxed up. They're very careful with it because they don't really know what it is at this point. And they get it uh, back up to the ship. But Loken has put it together and he's like, there's only one person who beat us here that could have done this. Erebus had to have done this. So he finally puts it together. He's the reason. Torgaddon does as well. Yeah, Torgan figures it out too. But they're they're not really going to talk about it because Erebus is such a a well-respected and trusted figure. To just start hurling accusations would be insane. Yep. So while all of this is going on, uh, Horus is still in the Apothecarium of the Vengeful Spirit, and he calls for his documentarist, uh, Miss Viva, and she comes to him. And he just kind of starts ranting about how the Primarchs kind of actually all hate each other and they don't get along. And there's basically just kind of airing out all of the dirty laundry um, right. of Maybe the highest saying they hate each other is of... a, Saying they hate each other is a bit harsh. There's certainly yeah. a lot of sibling rivalries and, you know, some of them don't get along as well as they should. But... Anyway, Again, sorry. he's really just airing out the dirty laundry of the Primarchs and, mm-hmm. and kind of the Emperor as well. And yeah, he, he, he talks about how, um, you know, the Emperor kind of just left us. You, you know, none of us know what he's doing. Um, you know, uh, the Lion and Angron were both really salty that I got War Master and they didn't. You know, the Lion is this super proud douchebag that always has to remind everybody that his Legion is the first Legion. Um, and it's, it kind of, it comes off as pretty ugly and a little petty to me. Um, Horace yeah, was, that's, was, you don't know why it's so, so ugly and petty to us. Why? Cause you know who the other Primarch that he spends the most time shit talking is? Gilliman? Gilliman. I play Dark uh, Angels, you play Ultramarines. Fuck this guy. Enough. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's, it's not fair because Gilliman Maybe at some in on some level, Gilliman thought it should have been him, but he was gracious enough not to cause a shitstorm about it like Angron did. Angron was is you know maybe one of the more petty Primars, maybe not as petty as Prairamo, but um, certainly super salty about it. You know, uh, Conrad Kurz was not happy about it. The Lion certainly wasn't happy about it. Um, I think Sanguinius and the Con they both knew like of course it was going to be. Horus, Magnus probably knew it was going to be Horus, but anyway, it it um, it's a pretty ugly interview, and this kind of rocks uh, Petronilla's perception of the Great Crusade, and you know, like these um these superhuman personalities are just as fallible as we are. They're assholes to one another. They're you know they're they're a little petty. They have yeah. their squabbles. Yeah, and and she's recording this, and she's like, I'm going to blow this whole thing open. Like, people are going to know uh, this veneer of these perfect, you know, gods are going to, it's going to all fall away. Um, You know, I basically I've got the story of the century here. Um, So so she she takes down that uh, all of this, this benediction. And I mean, Horace isn't really delirious at this point, but he's like, I'm going to die and. Again, it's the arrogance and the pride of, like, 
these Primarchs really didn't respect that I was the Warmaster, and I'm pissed about that, and so I'm going to air out all of my grievances right here on my deathbed. Because Horus at this point is like, I'm going to die. Right. So while all this is happening, um, was it uh, Luke Sedere was the uh, the Lodge Master? I can't remember. But anyway, um, the the Lodge calls call a secret meeting uh, involving everybody. And mind you, Torgadon and Loken are still on the moon or on their way back. So it's Abaddon, Little Horus Aximand, Erebus is there, and uh, Malagurst is also in agreement, and a ton of other Lodge members. And they, be- Erebus basically kind of leads the meeting, and he's like, look, I know of a, a, a super secret, like this, this radical treatment that might save the war master and everybody is so stressed out terrified they're going to lose the war master they agree and it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing um i can't remember like if there were any naysayers in the meeting if if loken or torgadon had been there they certainly would have been uh naysmiths about it well and they, they talk about that though as it it's really Aximand at that point that they really right. have to win over um, which he doesn't take that much convincing. Right. Um, but he does ask, he's like, what about Loken and what about Torgadon? And they say, well, Loken's not a Lodge member, so his opinion doesn't count here. And right. Torgadon will back us with no matter what we do. Right. Um, so they, they end up, they, they vote, they pass that, and they take the War Master out of the Apothecarium. They take him down to Davin to the Lodge of the Serpent. Right. So if you want to lead us into that one, talk yeah, to a absolutely. little bit there. So the uh, the lodge of the serpent here is um, it's it's one of these warrior lodges that the lodge of the Astartes is based off of, um, but it's it's supposedly a house of healing that they um, that is is kind of what they center themselves around. So they take the war master and they place him inside this lodge, and the doors close, and the idea is that. Um, these spirits or, or whatever are, are going to either heal him or in nine days the doors will open and the war master, uh, his body can be taken out at that point. Um, so they, they bear him in there and while this is happening, uh, Torgadon and Loken come back and they find out that the venge- that the Horus is no longer on the Vengeful Spirit. They go down to Davin, and there's this kind of standoff between them and Abaddon and Aximand about um, about bringing him here. Um, and Erebus isn't there, and they're like, "We want to talk to Erebus right now." And they said, "Well, this is this is a matter for our own legion. We aren't uh, we aren't going to." bring Erebus into it right now and from that point uh, we kind of leave Loken and Torgadon um, and the rest of the Mournful there and we kind of go into this this dreamlike state that that Horus is in he wakes up and he finds himself in this beautiful field um, with mountains and blue skies and he says, oh, I'm dead. This is what death is. Uh, let me back up real quick. Um, because there's an important part here where Loken calls this a house of false gods. 
that's we're gonna find out that that's that's what this is it's a house of false gods in a sense but fast forwarding again horace finds himself in this field um he's like i'm dead this must be what i guess heaven is like um but he's walking around he ends up beset by a pack of wolves and this wolf keeps asking him who are you so um when rewind a little bit there we get another character perspective from another primarch and this kind of comes out of the blue um when the I think it's when the, the Mournival decides to take Horus to the House of Healing, it cuts to Magnus the Red, the Primarch of the Thousand Sons. And he is far away on, on uh, the sorcerer planet um, Prospero. Prospero, yeah, sorry. We should, I, we should talk quick rundown on Magnus the Red. Basically, of, of all the Primarchs, he is the most gifted psyker. Um, but he has been told he's not allowed to use these powers anymore. No more magic. So, um, Magnus has, he, it, the perspective is he's just woken up from this prophetic vision in which the Awarmaster was mortally wounded, laying on his deathbed, and that if he is, uh, if he goes through this um, certain set of events, it will be the, the end of the galaxy. You know, he will turn against, he, he see, Magnus sees that Horus will turn against the Emperor and destroy humanity. So Magnus says to his equerry, uh, I think it's his equerry, um, anyway. Um, it's Aramon. Oh, uh, yeah. Who is also a very important character later. Yeah, he, he comes around. And Magnus says, you know, prepare the ritual. This has to happen. And Aramon is like, are you sure? I mean, we were told we're not allowed to do this, and it's super dangerous. And Magnus is just like, we don't really have a choice. We we have to try and save Horus. Horus is on his little vision quest. He walks around in this meadow for a minute, but he kind of takes a wrong step, and he finds himself in this this screaming, howling, um, like mountain range of these these giant iron peaks. There's flowing blood everywhere. There's fire and brimstone, and then he runs back into the meadow where he's beset by these red wolves. And he, he doesn't really have a sense of identity. He's like, well, I'm Horus. I'm just Horus. My name is Horus. Horus is who I am. And these red wolves, uh, these red wolves, uh, these red wolves are asking him, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Over and over again. He's like, I don't know what you want me to say. I'm Horus. And then I think one of the wolves howl and he, it, it all comes back to him. He is Horus Lupercal. Uh, war master of the uh, Imperium of Man, uh, son to the Emperor, and you know, it all it all clicks together for him, and he takes off running again, and he eventually comes upon this body of water and finds a, a dead body in it. Well, he thinks is a dead body. It's an Astartes body. And it's a very familiar one. He turns it over, and it is his good friend Haster Serjanus, who was the the member of the Mornival who died, and that's who Loken took the place of. So uh, Haster wakes up and starts talking to the Warmaster and says basically, you know, like, yeah, I died on 6319, but, you know, death is not the end here in the warp. Uh, you know, it's just it's just another way to continue your existence. And, you know, the, the, the bonds of mortality, the scales have fallen from my eyes, and you know, looking into the warp, I have seen the truth or something like that. And 
he kind of leads the um, the War Master into this uh, this supposed future where Horus sees these uh, I think eight statues of the would be eight, uh, nine statues, sorry, of the Primarchs that stay loyal to the Emperor in 40k. So the Lion, the Khan, uh, Lehman Rust, you know, all, all the loyal guys. And Horus is like, well, that's, that's kind of bullshit. Like, I won, I won the Great Crusade for him. I was his chosen instrument. Why am I not being exonerated? And in the center of these statues is a big statue to the Emperor himself. And he looks around and listens, and there are these you know, big processions worshiping the emperor. And uh, Haster, sa- Haster Sejanus says, you know, the emperor, it, his mission on Terra is he's seeking apotheosis. He wants to be a god. He is seeking worship. He is trying to make his way to divinity. And Horace is like, that is so stupid. We, we, th- we fought against that for, you know, centuries. Yeah, I, I think there's a great irony here um, of the way that, they, the route that they go for corrupting Horus, um, I, I kind of love it because they show what actual 40k is like. Right, yeah. It's this is like, just 40k. You, you don't want this. If you don't want yep. this, you need to turn against the Emperor. When in fact, if he doesn't <laughs> turn against the Emperor, none of that will happen. <laughs> right. This is uh, theoretically, right? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Sejanus paints a very colorful picture and it's it's somewhat um, convincing to Horus, but we'll see. Um, there's another... Oh, and, and then they um, they get chased off by the Red Wolves again. And Sejanus says, there's there's a demon chasing you. He's trying to, um, trying to push you out of the warp, or he's trying to devour your soul. And so Sejanus leads him into another... Um, kind of another vision quest area. And it is this, this big sterile vault underneath the Himalayan mountains back on Terra. And Horace is like, what is this? I don't understand. Where are we? And there are these like these big vats and these, um, these kind of incubation incubation cells. And Sejana says, you've been here before, you know what this is. And he examines one of these tanks and there's like this liquid set of eyes looking back at him and he recognizes them as his own. So he then puts together, he is in the gene vaults, the Emperor's gene vaults, where the Primarchs were basically created. And it's a very unnerving experience for him. And he's like, this, this is insane. What, you know, like, what's going on here? And Sejanus goes on to tell him, creating a Primarch is not something a single man can do, not even the Emperor. What you need to understand is that a bargain was struck between the powers of the warp and the emperor so that you could be created. If the emperor had the power or ability to create more primarchs, he would have, but he only made a handful of you because he was only given enough power to do so. And Horace is like, this is insane. There's no way, there is no way the emperor would make a deal with, with, you know, anything in the warp. It's unthinkable. Well, about that time, he kind of has this revelation, this, um, this kind of anomaly starts to form above him in this gene vault. And Haster Sejanus goes on to say, you know, um, the emperor made a deal with these entities in the warp and then he betrayed them. And he was too powerful for these warp entities to attack, you know, forthright. So they struck him where they could, which was the 
you know, less bulletproof gene vaults. And so the Primarchs were scattered kind of out of revenge. You know, the Chaos Gods wanted revenge on the Emperor for betraying them. So that's when this warp anomaly forms. The gene vats uh, start to get like rattled, sh shaken loose and sucked into the warp. But as this happens, the vault door opens up and this is the first time we get to see the Adeptes Custodes the bodyguards to the emperor himself. And one of them is none other than Constantine Valdor, who is the like the personal bodyguard of the emperor himself. Yeah, and, and this is where it gets interesting too, because then we realize that this might not just be a vision entirely, because Horus ends up fighting these guys. Right. And he, he he kills he, some of them. He kills a handful of custodies and he, he knocks Valdor out of the out of the gene vaults, almost killing him as well. And then at that exact moment, time stops and Horus is beset by this, you know, glowing silver light, you know, the, this, you know, penetrating warmth flows into him and the emperor steps into the vault and looks right at him. And Horus says, you know, father, father, you have to help me stop this. And the emperor says, I know you. And Horus... Horse you basically you says would that, undo all of my work. You need to turn back from this path. Turn back from this path or you will undo all that I have labored for. And Horus like, doesn't know what to really make of this. And it's like the Emperor doesn't recognize him. And so the Emperor just turns around and walks away. And all of the Primarch incubation, incubation cells get you know, sucked into the warp and spread across the stars. Yeah, and at that point, Horus is as well sucked into that, that warp vortex. Now, when he wakes up, he finds himself again caught. He He's lost Sir Janus at this point, uh, but he finds himself again surrounded by the Red Wolves. And one of them changes to end up becoming Magnus the Red. And Magnus explains that the future you've seen is not set. All things are in motion you do not have to continue down this path. Sir Janus comes back and says, this is a demon. He's trying to trick you. He's trying to consume your soul, your soul so that you cannot return to your body. And Magnus says, you're not even wearing your real face. And he kind of grabs the air and pulls it. And it pulls away this, this cloak of Sir Janus. And we find out that this is Erebus, which we already knew. Um, right. You know, when you're reading the book, we already knew it was Erebus. There's a scene where uh, Erebus conducts a ritual and they say you won't appear to the war master. Uh, his throat actually gets cut in that. And the first thing it talks about when Sir Jan when he wakes up as Sir Janus is he checks his throat, right. uh, which I thought was a cool was was a good little detail. Yeah, that, that was fun. Um, and basically the ritual is like you won't look like Erebus to the war master. You'll show up as somebody beloved and trusted. Which of course yeah. it's Sejanus because he's your boy. Yeah, and and so Erebus continues to be like, you no, you need to turn against the emperor um, to stop right. him from trying to become a god. And Magnus is like, this dude's full of shit. And, and this is kind of a this I I don't know about you. This argument is kind of dumb to me. Which, because which part? Because I love it. how I love how Magnus catches him. Yeah, because well, Magnus, yeah, Magnus. So Magnus is there, presumably under sorceress circumstances, which he's been forbidden from. So yeah. as as Magnus is yelling at Erebus to shut up, like, you know, you're lying to the war master. Um, 
Aramis is like, well, you're not even supposed to use magic. You're not supposed to be here. And then Horace is like, wait, you told me he was a demon. And then you describe him exactly as he is. I know you're lying to me. And well, so, and, and so my Aram- favorite part Aramis, of that too Aramis is, is just Ar- like, uh, oh shit. Yeah, you got me. Yeah. Well, and my favorite part of that too is then then also he's like he's like you're not supposed to use magic. You shouldn't be here. And Horace calls him out. And then he's like you used magic to be here obviously. Like why <laughs> yeah. are you calling him out? <laughs> yeah. like, you're you're both doing bullshit. This is all bullshit. <laughs> and that's my favorite part is Horace basically comes to the conclusion of between these two he's like fuck you Magnus fuck you Erebus I'm gonna do whatever I want and that's basically yeah. how the argument ends <laughs> exactly so um that's kind of the the end of the house of the false gods because the next scene is Loken and Torgadon um it, it's kind of another standoff in front of the doors everybody is beyond tense because it's the the end of the ninth day and the doors haven't opened yet and right then the doors start to open and the Warmaster comes out hail and whole. Yeah, and they're just overjoyed. Um, but as we're going to soon find out, this is not the same Horus that went into the house uh, as as came out. Um, and that's right. where we get into part four of the book, Crusades End. Uh, do you want to oh, lead us off there? Um, so the, the next scene picks up a while later. The... Uh, 63rd Expeditionary Fleet has made its way into a a new system where they meet another human race. And they immediately communicate, and they're like, we want to send envoys. Um, We we think that um, we can integrate into one another. And the envoy lands, and they initially have like a a really cordial uh, interaction. Uh, Right away, they notice that the, the power armor that these foreign warriors are wearing is almost identical to Astartes battle armor, except it's scaled down to fit regular humans. So they have the power armor. They don't have the gene tech to make super soldiers. They also have weapons that look remarkably close to bolters. And the, uh, the envoy that's sent is kind of this, um, he's this red robed, partially bionic kind of edit looking guy. And the Mechanicum envoy that's kind of plugged into the, the Warmaster's fleet immediately recognizes this and is like, holy shit, these are like, they're very similar to the priesthood of Mars. It's like, they're, they're a logic-based society based on technical data, and they, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be able to, to integrate super easily. This is so cool. Come to find out that this society is in position uh, in possession of several STC machines. That stands for Standard Template Construction. And this is the technology that initially allowed humanity to conquer the stars. So back before Old Night, this is, this is the technology that allowed so many colonies to form to hum- and allowed humanity to, to, to really explode out in, in uh, colonizing the uh, outer space. Yeah, this this thing, um, I don't I don't know. It doesn't do the best job, I think, of explaining how big of a deal this is. An STC, a fully intact STC, is the holy grail. Right, the, and it's not this that, is a machine that can build anything. And it's not that they have one of them; it's that they have several apparently. 
Yeah, and it's it's clear it, it is made to be a big deal because the second that this um, representative of the Orisian technocracy, as it's called, says, "Yeah, well, everything we have is built off of an STC," Horace steps back and blows his brains out. Yeah, it's um, blink of an eye. The honor guard that's with this uh, that's with this delegate or um, envoy. They get wasted right away, and they their weapons were completely unloaded. So they immediately try to withdraw, but the the warmaster orders their death, and so even Loken follows orders, cuts down every single one of the honor guard that came with the envoy, and then the war begins. Yeah, and it's we find out it's a it's a ten month campaign that's just very brutal and very bloody. Um, the warmaster ends up we we meet another legion here. Um, that the War Master ends up employing, and that is the Twelfth Legion, the the World Eaters under Angron, and this is a legion that is known for its brutality and its barbarity, and we get to see that here. Um, they are berserkers. They are shock troops. Like the Sons of Horus are shock troops, and they don't hand it, hold a candle to the World Eaters as far as the devastation that they will unleash. It is a full frontal charge. These guys are, they live for close combat. Um, they have been censured multiple times for their brutality. Um, it talks about a lot of the Sons of Horus are like, there is no honor in this fight. It is just pure savagery and brutality. There's there's no such thing as, you know, beating the, the world leaders don't believe in beating the enemy into submission and accepting their surrender. There is only massacre. Yeah, they will only destroy an enemy. Um, they are really, when used properly, these guys are your last resort. Um, they are all forms of diplomat. Any kind of dipl- diplomacy have failed. Like right. we are not going to make this world compliant. It is going to be scorched earth. That's what these guys are here for, um, and their Primarch Angron exemplifies that absolute psycho he's got a really good uh mcneil paints a really good picture of him actually that i liked anyway you know uh angron is this 12 foot tall super soldier who wears this kind of archaic gladiatorial armor he's got this chainmail cloak that has skulls weaved into it um his armor doesn't look like it's ever been cleaned it's covered in blood stains he's got um like a, a pair of chain axes and a pair of pistols on his hip. And then he's got this monstrous chain glaive that's like, it's 14 feet long and it just mows down troops left and right. Yeah. So this, this campaign takes place over the next 10 months. Um, and in that time as well, um, our good friend Ignace has been, kind of circulating propaganda around the ship about the massacre on the embarkation deck um, and really painting the Astartes in a poor light. And in that time uh, as well, Hector Varvarus, the commander of the Imperial Army, has been kind of baying for somebody needs to be held accountable uh, for this. And during the campaign, the Lodge holds another meeting. And this time Torgadon attends. And they basically lay out that they have a plan to deal with this 
whole embark embarkation deck situation, which is they intend to offer Loken up as a sacrificial lamb uh, on this, but they need all the other three members of the Mordeval to comply. Abaddon and Aximand are on board, uh, but they need Torgaddon as well. And Torgaddon in this moment, he states that if it takes lies and deceit to keep the Legion alive, better to let it die. And he refuses to comply. It's also important to remember that Erebus was at this meeting and he basically says something like, have you been laying low? Uh, Loken was, uh, has been looking for you. And uh, Erebus says something like, well, I'm, I don't plan on answering to him. And Torgaddon loses his shit at this and says, you'll answer to me, you son of a bitch. Draws a knife and holds it to Erebus's throat and almost kills him. You know, uh, it, it gets de-escalated, but Torgaddon has put together that he is the reason uh, the, the War Master was hurt. Were the galaxy such a better place if he had just gone ahead and cut Erebus? We would throat? have solved so many problems if Erebus had been murked in this situation. Yeah. So also, well, the, um, the fleets are holding station over this planet. We're greeted by another legion. Some familiar faces we've seen before. The Emperor's children show up. And it's not just our buddies Saltarvis and Lucius. Uh, the Primarch Fulgrim is there. And he shows was Fulgrim up. there? Fulgrim was there. I'm because just, he, you know, I got he got so overshadowed by everybody's favorite Lord Eidolon. Yep, Lord Eidolon was there, stinking up the place with his ego. Um, this is the first time we also see Fabius Bale. He is still around in 40k. He sticks around a while. But uh, Fulcrum shows up and says to Horus, he's like, look, I've been sent to see what's been going on. Rumors have been spread around that your legion needs to be held accountable for something. And, you know, he breaks the tension right away because the War Master is a little prickly about this. Fulgrim breaks the tension right away and is like, no, I'm just going to go back to Terra and tell them to mind their own fucking business. Um, you know, Horus kind of soothes his fears. And as Fulgrim is disembarking, Loken notices that he's got a familiar golden sword belted at his waist. And so he immediately rushes to the Apothecarian to ask um, Vaden, you know, like, why why did you release the the anathame? Why, why did you give it to the Emperor's children? And he's like, well, I, I was given written authorization that the Emperor's children were going to take it. And so the anathame is now with the Emperor's children. That's kind of important to remember. So where do we leave off? Oh, so... Yeah, um, um, just a couple quick highlights here. Uh, Loken and Lucius duel. I, I know we received some feedback about not talking about when Loken and Lucius duel in um, Horus Rising. Loken beats Lucius in Horus Rising. Lucius kicks the shit out of Loken in this, this book. Uh, he it's takes totally it very personally. Fight. Yeah, it's yeah. a very different fight. Uh, so to those who gave us the feedback that we needed to talk about that fight, there you go. Thank, yeah, thanks. You know who you are. Um, so let's see. Um, Torgaddon basically tells uh, the rest of the Mournival to go kick rocks. I'm not throwing Garbiel under the bus. Now, it's another thing that's important to mention. Uh, Loken has figured out who's writing the scandalous poetry that's being circulated throughout the fleet. It's Ignatius Carcassi, who has kind of been a ward of Loken thus far. 
and Loken, you know, has a pretty heated discussion with him and uh, Carcassy is like, look, man, you told, told me to tell the pure and unvarnished truth. That's what I'm doing. You can't just renege on that. That's, that is what we decided. And Loken's like, you're right. We have to tell the ugly truth. I hate it. It makes the Legion look terrible. I, I'm going to let it slide. If you rock any boats, you're under my protection. They can kick rocks. So, you know, the Mournival is saying, look, if we give up Loken as the sacrificial lamb, we can quietly eliminate Carcassy. It, it'll be fine. And Torgadon's like, no, we, we have to keep telling the truth. I agree with Loken. I'm out of here. So he leaves. And then the fighting ensues. Hector Varvarus has been um, put in line or put in charge of the frontline units. They, they're at this last cataclysmic push to take the, the last bastion called the, what is it, the Iron Citadel? Yeah, the Iron Citadel. But before that, um, the Lodge calls another meeting. And in that meeting, um, Horace arrives. He shows oh, up right. and he's brought a couple of guests with him. Um, he brought Tybalt Mar, who was the only captain besides Torgadon and Loken to not be in the Lodge. Um, and then he also brought Magon. Well, Yacht and Cruz, Yacht and Cruz is not a Oh, yes, Yacht and Cruz as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, he's half forgotten. <laughs> half forgotten by this podcast as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, More but, on him uh, later. Yeah. Um, but Horace basically says, like, I'm planning some shit and I need to know that you're all with me. And they're all like, yeah, of course. Um, you know, whatever you say, Dad, yeah, we're, we're, we're up for it. So fast forward to they're, they're taking the Citadel. Uh, basically, they've created a breach, and the plan is that the World Eaters will storm the breach with Angron at their front, uh, and the Sons of Horus will guard their flanks, while the Byzant Genizars, the Imperial Army under Hector Varvarus, will bring up the rear in that and then secure the area once that is through incredibly bloody battle uh very vicious and i think an entire fucking building falls on angron yeah uh essentially uh, the uh half of the the bastion wall falls on angron he gets yeah buried, and, buried. and like when that happens they're like oh shit like he's dead like, everybody yeah, they, they think dead. that they think that a primarch has died so both legions world eaters and sons of horus blow up at that point like they just go on a murder spree yeah and they they fight their way into the inner citadel and loken is just like totally overtaken with this battle rage and he kind of wakes up and it's almost too late to stop it he's like this is going to be a massacre so he and torgadon eventually get the word spread to like cool it guys we don't want to massacre these guys they're they've surrendered so let's not kill everybody and as Hector Varvarus, Loken, and Torgadon are accepting the official surrender from the Iron Citadel's Castellan, Angron erupts from this pile of rubble and just yells, Blood for Horus, and the massacre ensues. He cuts down like 20 dudes with this massive glaive, and... Yeah, uh, Angron by... is just a fucking yeet cannon at this point. Yeah. Like, he it... just pops up and he's like surprise motherfuckers <laughs> he's he is a walking blender like just just i mean maybe save a bullet for yourself if you see him on the other side save a bullet for yourself if he's on your side i mean nobody's safe um so uh 
the massacre ensues. The Castellan is like the first to get cut down by, um, by Angron. And when the smoke clears, Hector Varvaris lies dead on the battlefield. Yeah. There's this, um, it's, it's like a tragedy, you know, um, but, and everybody kind of chalks this up to, this is just kind of Angron being Angron. Like this is not out of character for him at all. Right. War crimes um, are just another day ending in Y. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, but there's, a, I mean, there's a massive state funeral for Hector Varvaris. Uh, Horus yeah. himself gives the eulogy, talking about what a great guy he is, all this stuff. Um, but we get this scene between Torgaddon and Loken where they talk about, uh, and Torgaddon had the apothecaries run the tests, but it was an Astartes bolt round that killed Hector Varvaris. And, and it wasn't it wasn't like straight stray fire. It was a center mass shot. It was yep. aimed. It was aimed. That's that's it's very very specifically it was aimed. Uh-huh. And then we come to the last scene in the book. And there is a gathering in the Warmaster's personal sanctum. Malagast is there, oh, Ezekiel Abaddon, Horus Aximand, uh, Regulus of the Mechanicum. Um the princeps of the Legio Mortis, all of these big players are in there. And Horus essentially unveils his plan of, I'm going to throw, throw down the emperor and um, take his place and take his place as the master of mankind. And I've spoken to all of you individually. This is our first time gathering together. Um, but they talk about, Oh, you know what? What are we going to do about all the other legions? Um, and and we kind of get an ins- a start of an insight into Horus's plan. Um, right. He he says that oh, Fulgrim is with us. Uh, Angron's with us. He says I'm going to have oh, and Lorgar is with us as well. I am going to have the word bearers go establish warrior lodges in all the other legions to see which ones. I can get to turn to our side and I'm going to use the lodge as a poison, uh, just as it was used in his own legion um, to, to get out, to get people against us. He says, I've also, I know that there are a couple of legions that will never, th- there's no way that they will join us. He says specifically, he sp- mentions the ultramarines, um, but there must, this is where we hear about the first time we hear about the muster at Calth. Yeah. Um, and how they're going to be ambushed by Corferon and the Wordbearers. We'll see and how that goes. When we get to the battle for Kalth, oh, that's one of the best books in the that. That series. is, it's another Dan Abnett novel, and that is yeah. that is gonna. We're running long in the tooth here. The <laughs> the uh, No No Fear book is going to to take forever. Be prepared. That's going to be a long episode for us. But so, that's that's kind of where, where we're at and that's kind of where things end. Um, a couple of things that we didn't touch on, um, while Horus is in the house of healing, um, we touch on, we touch base with Euphrates Keela and Carol Sinderman, who Carol Sinderman is the prophet of secular truth. Um, you know, he's, he's very, um, very good at preaching the atheistic message of the, the, uh, the Imperial future, but he has been um, shaken after his dealings at the Whisperheads, And so he's, he's been pouring over all these old tomes. He's been taking a lot of notes. He's been figuring stuff out. And 
Euphrates Kila had this religious awakening. She's now a full-fledged emperor worshiper. Um, she's giving sermons to you know other people interested in it. And they have this interesting experience well in the archives. Uh, Carol Sinderman accidentally translates part of the Book of Lorgar and summons a freaking demon into the bowels of the ship. They run from it, but uh, Euphrates Kila is eventually able to... Uh, you know, somehow channel the emperor's divinity through herself and destroys this demon and it puts her in a coma. So at the end of the book, she is in a coma. Um, Carol Sinnerman and uh, Mercedes Allerton are like reminiscing at her bedside and keeping her up to date. And while that's happening, um, Igneous Carcassi is still distributing his um, uh, very harsh literature and uh, Maggard, the mute bodyguard of Petronella Vivar, shows up at his doorstep, gives him a note, he reads it, realizes what's happening, and, you know, it's implied that he has killed himself in the end. Meanwhile, while that's happening, Horace shows up in Petronella Vivar's personal quarters and says, oh, this is some very interesting work you've put together. Too bad it'll never see the light of day. And he snaps her neck. So she showed up for a handful of scenes and ends the book with relatively no consequence to the overall story. She She's basically there for Warmaster to kill in the end. To kind of symbolize like, oh, all the remembrancers are probably going to meet a similar fate. You know, Carcassi certainly did. And... Um, Maggard disting- distinguished himself so well on the uh, the Plague Moon that Horus has kind of taken a shine to him. You're like, oh, you're clearly an awesome warrior. Uh, you know, maybe you'll have a place in the Legion at some point. So that's kind of the end of the book. Um, I can't think of anything else. I think we actually got everything this time. I think we did pretty good there. Um, yeah. That's. I know we, we kind of tried to speed it up there about halfway through. We could have talked a lot longer um so let's let's just kind of be quick here uh favorite parts go Ooh, um i like the vision quest um i think there's i like the i i always really think the parts on old terra are really interesting i like the humanity's history before the great crusades um i like the plague moon um, like the, the erratic Horus parts aside, uh, I think it's well-written. I'm with you where the character, characterizations aren't always great, but I still really enjoy the book. Um, the little details, um, kind of like, like I talked about at the beginning plenty, um, McNeil doesn't always line up with the previous books, so that's kind of my gripe, but I, I, I like the book. It's a really good book. Yeah, I would agree. Um... My favorite parts, again, definitely the vision quest. I think that's the yes. best part of the book. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I get it just the irony is not lost on me that the way that they convince Horace to turn against the emperor is by showing him what will happen if he turns against the emperor. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the, it's the ultimate irony. Yeah. And it's 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 like the most forty k thing to ever forty k. It's like, yeah. hey, this terrible thing is going to happen if you do that or if you don't do this or if you do do this or if you know maybe if you just take a nap you, terrible shit is going to happen no matter what 
Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh it's it's definitely there a lot of irony there of like, hey, you don't want this to happen, right? No, I don't want that to happen at all. Okay, well if you do exactly what you're doing, then this will happen. Okay, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Horace is like, Well, I wanna avoid this future, I wanna dethrone the Emperor. Well, guess guess what, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Um one last thing that I think because it's important to the next book. They talk about even if you turn some of the legions, even if you spread some of the other legions out, there's still a lot of legions in your way. Right. And he says, I have a plan for them. I'm going to draw them into an ambush. And they say, how are you going to do that? He goes, there's a place not far from here called the Istvan system. Now, longtime fans know the Istvan system. I'm so excited to get into the Istvan system. Um, For you guys who are new to the to the to the Horus Heresy or Warhammer 40k as a whole, this is a big one. This is a big one that we're coming up on here. And Um, you know, big props to the next author we're going to get to talk about, Ben Counter. He writes an absolute slapper here, boys. It is it is an amazing book. So yeah, do you want to plug that book real quick and then we'll wrap up? Yeah, so. Um, go ahead and check out the next book in the series, Galaxy in Flames by Ben Counter. And it is amazing. I can't, I can't do it enough justice. I can't wait to talk about it. It's one of my favorites and it, it is an amazing finale to this three book part or this three book set really launching us into the, into the, the 31st millennia. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you liked the podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Yeah, we really appreciate you guys. Um, again, hit us up on social media, Twitter at LegionCast18, Instagram, same handle. Um, email us your feedback uh, at le- uh, LegionCast18 at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Give us your thoughts on any of the books, really. Horus Rising, False Gods, Galaxy and Flames. Um, let us know what you think. Just, you know, if you just want to talk hobby, send us a tweet. Absolutely. We love doing that. We're going to try and be better about getting some content up on social media. That's kind of on me. Um, Social media is the devil, though, so I I struggle with it. Um, But uh, thanks for coming. Leave us a like and a review. Um, Brandon, fix your... Fix your paint gun or your your airbrush and get a better mic, you donkey. Yeah, well, (laughs) you know, when you start actually putting paint on a model, we'll talk. All right, everybody. We're going to wrap it up here, though. Thank you again so much, and uh, we'll see you next time on the next episode of Legion Cast. 